Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Christian nationalism, including an extreme version advocated by the group The New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR, has become influential in American government and parts of the judicial system. The NAR advocates for Christian dominion over government, religion, family, business, education, arts and entertainment, and the media. According to the NAR, some of its opponents are afflicted by demons, which must be cast out through exorcism. The NAR has aligned itself with Donald Trump in efforts to overturn the election. Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, has said he's been profoundly influenced by Dan Cummins, a Christian nationalist activist. A flag associated with the NAR hangs outside Johnson's office. An Alabama Supreme Court decision just made it illegal to destroy frozen fertilized embryos that are used in infertility treatments because those embryos are people. The chief justice of the court wrote a concurring opinion that says, even before birth, all human beings have the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. My guest, Brad Onishi, not only studies Christian nationalism, he used to be part of that movement. He left after studying theology at Oxford University. He's the author of the book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. He also co-hosts the podcast, Straight White American Jesus, which reports on and analyzes the impact of Christian nationalism on American democracy. He teaches at the University of California, San Francisco. Brad Onishi, welcome to Fresh Air. Do you think Christian nationalism has entered the mainstream? I think it has. Christian nationalism is having a moment. Uh, It's having a moment in ways that uh, it's requiring those who adhere to its principles and ideologies to respond to it. Folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and others have uh, talked about the ways that Christian nationalism not only informs their understanding of politics, but how they identify explicitly as Christian nationalists. And so we are at a point in American politics where Christian nationalism is something that many people are discussing. Are there many people in Congress who are affiliated with Christian nationalism? I think it's fair to say that, yes, one of the things that's true about our Congress is that it is disproportionately Christian. Now, there are many different types of Christian people in our Congress from various denominations. However, if we look at the GOP and we look at the the tenets of the party's policies, and its approach to uh, the upcoming elections, we find core Christian nationalist ideals in that platform, and we find many, many, many members of Congress from the GOP who support those principles. So from outgoing Speaker Kevin McCarthy to current Speaker Mike Johnson, all the way to uh, senators and uh, other members of the House, there are many folks who I would describe as Christian nationalists in the United States Congress. What are some of the fundamental principles of Christian nationalism? Like, how would you define Christian nationalism? I think in very simple terms, Christian nationalism is the idea that Christian people should be privileged in the United States in some way, economically, socially, 
politically, and that that influence and that privilege is a result of the country being founded by and for Christians. Christian nationalism is not the idea that others can't be here, that if you're a Muslim or an atheist that you have to leave. It's also not the idea that uh, only Christians can be part of the government. However, for most Christian nationalists, there is a core belief that the story of the United States is one where it has been elected by God to play an exceptional role in human history. And as being chosen by God, it's the duty of Christian people to carry out his will on earth. So Christian nationalists take an approach to their Christianity that says it should have an undue influence on our government, on our economics, on our culture, and that it is, by dint of our history— uh, uh, the religious faith that uh, is is uh, meant to be privileged in our public square. Uh, with that said, there are different kinds of Christian nationalists and different different ways that people manifest their understanding of the term. But when it comes down to it, if we all sit down as Americans at a table, and there are people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different faiths, and someone who is a Christian says, just by being at this table— I should have a special place. Well, to me, that's Christian nationalism, because you're saying that somehow this country is yours in a way that it is not for everyone else, and to me, therein lies the problem. Do you think the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, in his concurring opinion, that has outlawed the destruction of frozen embryos, um, equating frozen embryos used in infertility treatments with murdering people. Um, Do you think his concurring opinion, which keeps referencing God, is an example of Christian nationalism? So this is an an example of Christian nationalism par excellence. Uh, The concurring opinion by Justice Tom Parker uh, uses as its evidence to arrive at, at his legal opinion. It uses the Bible. It uses Christian manifestos. It uses work by the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, by the reformer John Calvin. These are the pieces of data that he uses to justify an opinion at the Supreme Court of Alabama. He said on the very same day that that decision came down on a podcast that God created government and the fact that we have let it go into the possession of others is heartbreaking. The very idea that we would have a Supreme Court of any state in this country who would deliver an opinion based on the Bible is the most clear example of Christian nationalism that I can think of. And just as a sidebar here, he he, he was mentored by a former Alabama uh, chief justice, uh, Roy Moore, who was famous for having a, a marble replica of the Ten Commandments in his courthouse. The Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. He refused to take it down, and so he was um, ousted from the Supreme Court as a result. Tom Parker is really the protege of Roy Moore, and Roy Moore was uh, notorious for the Ten Commandments controversy that you just mentioned. Roy Moore was also notorious for his Senate run a couple of years ago when he faced off against Doug Jones in Alabama. What I think those of us uh, who don't pay attention to Alabama politics in detail every day uh, perhaps did not understand is that Tom Parker is is a continuation of Roy Moore's politics. Uh, And he may even be more 
uh, savvy when it comes to articulating his understanding of the United States as a Christian nation than his predecessor. An extreme group of Christian nationalists is the New Apostolic Reformation, and they advocate the Seven Mountain Mandate, which is that Christian nationalists or, or Christians should lead government, family, religion, business, education, media, arts, and entertainment, and that they, all of these sectors should reflect the kingdom of God. Um, and I think I mentioned all seven there. <laughs> so <laughs> what does that mean to reflect the kingdom of God in family, religion, business, education, media, arts and entertainment, and the government? The Seven Mountains Mandate is a particular form of understanding human society that says that Christian people are not called to persuade their neighbors to practice the Christian faith, to demonstrate to their uh, fellow Americans that the Christian faith is, is a faith of love and truth. The Seven Mountains Mandate is, as my colleague Matthew Taylor says, a mandate to colonize the earth for God. The, the seven domains, as you listed them, arts and leisure and the economy and the government, the family, are seen as mountains of conquest. The goal is not dialogue with neighbors who may be Muslim or atheist or Hindu. The goal is not to simply reflect the character of Christ on earth by way of living a life that upholds his glory and his teachings. The goal is to have absolute authority and power over every facet of human society. And so we can see here what I take to be a very dangerous approach to practicing Christianity in the public square. It is not one that, that recognizes democracy or dialogue, pluralism as sacred values. The goal is power. The goal is conquest. And so when one hears about a politician or a leader or anyone in influence, especially as part of our government, who adheres to the Seven Mountains mandate, that should set alarm bells off immediately. What is the strategy for fulfilling the Seven Mountain mandate? When it comes to government, uh, I think we're seeing the, the strategy play out in real time. The goal is to institute uh, people at every level of government who will either act as Christians carrying out God's mission on earth, this mission to colonize or take dominion of every part of human society, or to elect and work with those who are going to carry out that mission, whether or not they're doing so as uh, conscious uh, purveyors of, of God's plans themselves. So when we think about something like Project 2025, the, the forecasted ideal of the second Trump term, when we think of and this is a project a of the Conservative Heritage Foundation, the the Conservative Heritage Foundation. But if we look at the the sponsors of Project Twenty Twenty Five, we have others. We have Hillsdale College, uh, we have Liberty University, uh, we have the Claremont Institute, uh, we have uh, TPUSA, many Christian nationalist universities or organizations. And so the the goal, it, it, when it comes to government, is to institute people at every level whether that be national politics, the White House, the United States Senate, the United States House, or all the way down to the hyper-local, the school boards, the mayor, the county supervisor, and to say the goal is to have people in those cogs of the government's machine that will work to colonize this government for God, to return it to uh, glory, to make America great again, 
by instituting a very narrow and hardcore vision uh, for a Christian society. Uh, we see that with the, the recent decision in Alabama. We see that in other uh, proposed policies, whether that is overturning Oberfell and uh, the Supreme Court's decision on marriage equality, whether that is a national abortion ban, and so on and so forth. So uh, we're seeing that strategy play out in government, I think, right in front of our eyes. People often wonder why do so many evangelicals support Donald Trump when his lifestyle is hardly a model of Christian values, his business practices, hardly you know, a model of, of, of Christian values. The um, New Apostolic Reformation, an extreme group on, of Christian nationalists, sees Trump as the anointed person to help create a Christian state. Um, can you begin to explain that? The New Apostolic Reformation and the Seven Mountains Mandate have their goal uh, as conquest and power, as uh, we discussed earlier. And so if your goal is to colonize the earth for God and to dominate American politics and governance, then you want somebody who's willing to go along that road and down that road with you. Uh, if I think about previous iterations of presidential candidates who have been favored by the religious right— uh, we can think of Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan was somebody who did everything he could to curry the favor of evangelicals and white Catholics and the moral majority uh, in uh, in the election against Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan delivered on some of those promises, but he ended up frustrating some of his uh, religious right uh, supporters. He didn't go all the way. Well, we arrived a, a decade or so later to George W. Bush. George W. Bush was a self-identified evangelical who had been saved by his faith in Jesus Christ, and he certainly did a lot to promote uh, the interests of evangelicals and other conservative Christians in the country. But George W. Bush, despite what he did in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, when he left office, it felt like the itch had not been scratched, that there was still something wrong with the country, because even though we'd had an evangelical president for eight years, the country continued to be less religious, less Christian. It continued to get more pluralistic, more diverse racially and ethnically. And then all of a sudden, it was Barack Obama. And Barack Obama was like made in a lab to scare uh, white Christian nationalists. So Barack Obama is president, and then we get Oberfell and gay marriage is legalized. By the time Donald Trump arrives, this group of, of Christian nationalist voters, whether they be evangelical, whether they be conservative Catholics or Latter-day Saints, are in the mood not for somebody who simply identifies with them and their politics, someone like Ted Cruz or Mike Huckabee. They're in the mood for somebody who will act as the brutalizing barbarian needed to take the country back. If you want to colonize the earth for God— it's not enough to have a testimony that says Jesus saved me from my sins or from my alcoholism. What you need is a bully, somebody who will put in line all those folks that you think are ruining your country and causing it to descend into the pits of hell. You don't just need somebody who's going to go to church on Sunday and talk a good talk. You need somebody who will destroy in order to rebuild. 
So Donald Trump, yeah, doesn't go to church a lot. Donald Trump been married a couple times. But you know what he promises in ways that no one in our lifetimes has? He promises to punish those who have caused this country to go the wrong way. And so eight years later, we have a base that is more rabid to make him their barbarian king than ever before. So when Trump says at the ellipse on January 6th, we fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, then you think that like the NAR really likes that kind of language because it's about like fighting like hell, taking back the country, uh, the kind of language that Trump uses that represents the kind of strong person who's willing to fight to take it back. I think that's exactly right. The trademark of the New Apostolic Reformation is spiritual warfare. They believe that all Christians are involved in a cosmic battle of good and evil. And so any language that suggests this idea of fighting, of of conflict, of war, uh, speaks directly to their theologies and beliefs. And so when Trump says, you fight like hell, they're thinking, we've already been fighting like hell against all the powers of Satan, and we're ready to continue doing that. Uh, It only emboldens uh, their ideas and spurs them on to further action. Besides the fact that many Christian nationalists support Trump for reasons that you were describing— Um, What are their direct connections to Trump? Well, I think there's a a litany of connections. Uh, I I think what we saw in the first Trump term is that uh, Trump promised to appoint uh, to the Supreme Court uh, those handpicked by the Federalist Society, and the Federalist Society being uh, under the influence of Leonard Leo, a notorious Christian nationalist, Uh, who has uh, many of the characteristics and visions that we've been talking about today. Uh, He came through on those picks, and he uh, was willing to uh, do uh, as they wished. And that convinced many in those camps that he was trustworthy uh, as a president and as a a candidate. Uh, Trump has also courted, I would say, movements and actors that are Uh, part of the Christian nationalist matrix. Uh, Trump was willing to retweet QAnon conspiracies, ideals about a satanic cabal of leaders trying to uh, ruin the United States and ruin the globe in essence. So we can see uh, in terms of his ideals and his willingness to embrace conspiracy, whether those relate to uh, Barack Obama's birth certificate all the way to uh, COVID denialism and the ways that it was uh, supposedly being used, the pandemic, to uh, trick and tear down the United States. Trump was willing to take up ideas that are enormously popular in Christian nationalist circles. Uh, My colleague Paul Jupe from Denison University has done great work uh, showing the large majorities of white evangelicals who identify with some aspect of the QAnon conspiracy. Uh, And so when Trump takes up those conspiracies publicly— it's a signal to them that he's one of them, and he is doing what, what God wants in those terms. Now, there's also more concrete uh, connections. Uh, you know, We can think of uh, officials who are trying to infuse Christian nationalism into a Trump second term, as Politico reported last week. Russ Vaught is the official uh, leading that charge, as Politico reported. Well, Russ Vaught was 
part of uh, the Trump administration, along with William Wolf, one of the most notorious Christian nationalists on social media, uh, a former uh, intelligence officer. So uh, Trump is willing not only to espouse Christian nationalist ideas, to, to uh, champion Christian nationalist causes, but he's willing to bring in Christian nationalists to his administration in ways that continue to convince this group of Americans that he is their man. Well, let's take another break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Brad Onishi, author of the book Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. We'll talk more about the impact of Christian nationalism on American democracy after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. Hey, it's Seth. And I'm Molly. We're producers at Fresh Air, and together we write the newsletter. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the show. We highlight interviews from the week, recommend things that we're reading, watching, and listening to, and give you an exclusive look at the interviews that are coming up. My dad raves. I love reading every week, even when I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Subscribe for yourself at whyy.org slash fresh air. Let's get back to my interview about Christian nationalism. My guest is Brad Onishi, a former Christian nationalist who has reversed his position and now writes critically about the movement and its impact on American democracy. He's the author of the book Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. He co-hosts the podcast Straight White American Jesus, which reports on and critiques Christian nationalism. He teaches at the University of San Francisco. There's a photo of Trump in the White House and um, a group of evangelical leaders are kind of doing a laying on of hands, like a group laying on of hands. What does that photo signify? Well, I think it signifies a couple things. One, that Trump is willing to allow those leaders to pray for him uh, and that he is showing to anyone who will, who will see the photo and who will pay any attention that he's a president who supposedly uh, wants the anointing uh, of those evangelical leaders and welcomes their leadership uh, in, his, in his administration, in his Oval Office, in his White House. It also shows that those leaders have direct access to him, that if you are someone who 
uh, follows or takes guidance from any of those ministers, any of those apostles or prophets or, 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 uh, or pastors, then you are somebody who has direct access to Trump by way of them. So the, the, the photo does so many things to bolster Trump's sense of religiosity uh, in the eyes of, of the Christian nationalist uh, segments uh, of our country. But it also, it also demonstrates something that evangelicals and charismatics have wanted since they got behind Reagan six decades ago, and that is direct access and influence over United States government. If the goal is to colonize Earth for God, what else more do you want than to have the ability to lay hands on and influence the president of the United States? Did you, rec- did you recognize many of the people in that photo as being leaders within the Christian nationalist movement? I did, and I think one stands out, and it's it's somebody that I think uh, has become somewhat infamous over the last couple of years, and that's uh, the worship leader and influencer Sean Foyt. Sean Foyt uh, is somebody who was uh, raised and discipled in Christian nationalist circles in Northern California. He's become somewhat of a provocateur uh, in uh, the the last five or six years, somebody who led uh, anti-COVID shutdown rallies, uh, somebody who has used the Proud Boys as his personal uh, security force. And Sean Foyt reaches out and he touches Trump from a, from about four or five people away in that photo. Uh, and it really stands out to me because it's a, it's a moment where Sean Foyt is able to demonstrate to anybody who's looking that he's somebody who's made it all the way uh, to the Oval Office with the president uh, and is, is praying for him uh, by way of direct touch to his body. It's, it's a really symbolic and, in, in, in my view at least, a really unfortunate uh, photographic evidence of the influence of Christian nationalists on our government. I'm sure you've seen this, but Trump posted a video on his social media platform, Truth Social, and it's called God Made Trump. And I just want to—the sound quality on it isn't very good, so I'm not going to play the audio, but I will quote some of what is said in it. So the narrator says, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us Trump. God had to have somebody willing to go into the den of vipers, call out the fake news for their tongues as sharp as serpents. The poison of vipers is on their lips. So God made Trump. God said, I need somebody to be strong and courageous, who will not be afraid or terrified of the wolves when they attack, a man who cares for the flock, a shepherd to mankind who will never leave or forsake them. What do you know about this video? Well, (laughs) what I know is the video is uh, audacious, to say the least. But for me, when I saw it, it confirmed everything that uh, we had known for years now, and that is that uh, Trump has fashioned himself as specifically chosen by God. Uh, He has put himself in the place as somebody playing not just the role of a politician, but as a cosmic savior to a Christian mission. And his followers are the ones Uh, who led him to that belief. So this video is the culmination of years and years of rhetoric about Trump's anointing. Trump really must love the idea that a lot of Christian nationalists see him as the anointed one who's going to lead lead us to a more Christian nation. But the idea that he is the anointed one must be 
so affirming of everything he believes of himself. <laughs> I it, it really seems that way. It really seems that this is a role he believes he was made for, and it's not one that he's shying away from. But I also think that it, it really reflects a place that we've arrived in American politics that is quite different from a decade ago. We're not talking about political opponents anymore, those who disagree on policy. We're talking about those who've been elected by God, like Trump, to destroy those who are in the, the service of Satan, like Joe Biden or anyone else on the other side. So when Trump leans into this role, he's leaning into the idea that he's divinely ordained and that American politics is a matter of good and evil, God and Satan, rather than simply the best person for the job. And that's quite a change from where we were just a decade ago. I want to get back to the New Apostolic Reformation, a group at the far edge of Christian nationalism. Let's talk about that group's involvement in January 6th. Um, what did you see at the actual riot that led you to believe that the people you were watching were Christian nationalists? As the riot unfolded, many scholars of religion like myself gathered on Twitter and began using a hashtag, Capital C's Religion, in order to collect uh, symbols and pictures and videos uh, from the insurrection that showed the religious dimensions of what was happening. And what became clear almost immediately is that when you looked in the crowd, you saw uh, many Christian flags. Uh, you saw uh, many s flags and signs that says, you know, Trump is my president, Jesus is my savior. But you, if you look deeper, you saw other things. You saw people who were carrying uh, icons of Mary, statues of Jesus. Uh, you saw on the gallows that were erected for Mike Pence, prayers, and, and uh, uh, the idea that we should return the country back to God's people. You saw many folks gathering in a, impromptu prayer sessions and to sing songs of worship and praise using guitars, people kneeling on the ground, uh, worshiping God. Uh, and then if you looked even closer, you saw symbols that to those uninitiated would have not appeared to be Christian nationalists, but nonetheless were. The appeal to heaven flag, uh, a symbol made popular by a new apostolic reformation leader named Dutch Sheets about a decade ago, uh, that signals this, uh, this call for Christian revolution in the United States. Well, there were dozens and dozens of those flags at January 6th. So to the trained eye, uh, the religious dimensions of the riot were clear from the very beginning. I just want to intercede here and say that um, that the appeal to heaven flag that you just mentioned, that's the flag that is hung outside of Mike Johnson's office, the Speaker of the House. It is. And that flag uh, has roots in the American Revolution. It, George Washington, and it was inspired by John Locke. However, the argument that I've made... Uh, again, with my colleague Matt Taylor, is that for the last decade, that flag has been used by New Apostolic Reformation leaders to signal Christian revolution, an, an upending of our, of our government and, and democracy as it stands today. So when I see that flag in the crowds at J6th, I'm not thinking, oh, there's somebody influenced by the Enlightenment ideals of John Locke. <laughs> I'm thinking that's somebody who's uh, heated Dutch sheets dozens and dozens and dozens of calls to stand up uh, for God's people and Donald Trump and to uh, be here at January 6th in order to help uh, in this spiritual and actual warfare that's taking place. 
So much more to talk about, but right now we have to take a short break, so let me reintroduce you. My guest is Brad Onishi, author of the book Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview about the impact of Christian nationalism on American democracy with Brad Onishi. He's the author of the book Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. He co-hosts the podcast Straight White American Jesus and teaches at the University of San Francisco. I want to ask you about the founder of the New Apostolic Reformation, C. Peter Wagner. And again, this is the group that's really, really on the far fringe of Christian nationalism, like perhaps the or one of the most extreme uh, groups. That's also kind of co- codified some of the beliefs. Is that fair to say? It is, and I think they're they're very much leading the charge on on the the kinds of visions for America that Christian nationalists are putting forth today. C. Peter Wagner died in 2016, shortly after endorsing. Um, Donald Trump. Um, I got to interview C. Peter Wagner in 2011. I had interviewed a journalist who had done a kind of investigative piece about the new apostolic reformation. And then right after we heard from her on our show, I I interviewed C. C. Peter Wagner. And one of the things that Wagner uh, believed in was demons and that demons are controlling certain territories, they're controlling certain people, and they have to be, those demons have to be driven out. Um, So I asked him about demons when I interviewed him, and here's a clip from that interview. And this interview is from 2011. The word demon figures prominently into the new apostolic reformation. Demons figure prominently in your religious views. You, you and other people in the New Apostolic Reformation have described demons as if they are alive and functioning uh, in America and in other countries uh, around the world. So do you believe that there are actually like living demons, like Satan's representatives, who are functioning in America now? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, in uh, Oklahoma City, there's a annual meeting of a professional society called the International Society of Deliverance Ministers, which my wife and I founded uh, many years ago. This is a society of a large number, a couple hundred Christian ministers who are in the ministry of deliverance. Their seven-day-a-week occupation is casting demons out of people, and they have professional expertise in this, and they happen to meeting, be meeting right now. My wife is one of them. She's written a whole book called How to Cast Out Demons, and uh, I don't do that much. Once in a while, when I get in a corner, I might. But that's been her ministry. 
And so I've been very, very close to that uh, for years. We've been married for 60 years. Do you believe that there are people in American politics who are possessed by demons? Uh, we don't like the word, to use the word possessed because that means they don't have any power of their own. We like to use the word afflicted or technical term demonized. Mm-hmm. But there are people who, yes, who are directly affected by demons, not only in politics, but also in, in the arts, in the media, in, in religion, in the Christian church. And uh, How yes, can you tell? Demons, like when somebody's been afflicted by a demon, how, how can you tell? Sometimes they know. Sometimes the demon has identified itself to the person. Uh, sometimes you can tell by uh, manifestations of superhuman, unhuman behavior. Sometimes you can tell by skilled deliverance ministers. My wife has a five-page questionnaire that she has people fill out before she ministers to them. So she asks the kind of questions that a medical doctor would ask to find out to diagnose an illness. So she actually does diagnostic work on people to discover not only if they have demons, but what those demons might be. Okay, that was C. Peter Wagner, recorded on Fresh Air in 2011. Um, and he, again, is the founder of the New Apostolic Reformation, um, an extremist but but growing rapidly group of Christian nationalists. Um, Brad, your reaction to the idea of, of demons and the need to cast them out, cast them out of people? Well, I, I think that Wagner's views uh, 10 years ago might have— seem jarring to the average American. Uh, Certainly uh, 20 or 25 years ago, they would have been even more uh, fringe. However, uh, as somebody who grew up and converted into Christian nationalist settings and was certainly adjacent to the kinds of charismatic churches that Wagner uh, and the New Apostolic Reformation inspire and uh, are are cultivating, uh, we we thought about demons and demon affliction quite a lot. Uh, we thought about the ways that spiritual warfare played on individuals. And if we fast forward to today, uh, one of the things that I think is evident if we pay attention to the rhetoric of very high-level politicians and influencers uh, surrounding uh, the American right and uh, our government is the idea of spiritual warfare and the demonization of Uh, those who are on the other side of the political spectrum from them. My point is that, you know, when you interviewed Wagner, it might have seemed like this was a man on the edges of American Christianity. And yet, if we read speeches from CPAC 24, or from uh, from TPUSA, or other very mainstream and important foundational aspects of American conservatism, the idea of being afflicted by satanic forces is ubiquitous. And so we've seen it become normalized and mainstreamed in ways that I don't think even C. Peter Wagner uh, would have expected going back to the time of that interview. Well, let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Brad Onishi. He's the author of the book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. 
For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. So let's talk about your experiences as a Christian, Christian nationalist when you were a teenager. You first went to church, or to a Christian nationalist church, because your girlfriend was a member, and you say it was a great excuse to spend time with her on a weekday night. But then you got really caught up in the teachings of the church. What were the teachings at that time that got you interested? You know, I was a kind of angsty teenager who found in church two things. One, all of the answers to the questions about the meaning of life and the meaning of my life. Uh, I found in church uh, the idea that God loved me, that if I confess my sins to God, I would be forgiven and enjoy eternal life. I found answers to questions about what happens after you die and why the earth was created in the first place. And they were very quick and easy answers. They didn't require any long division. And it, it, it's something that satisfied, satisfied my soul very, very immediately at, the, at that time. I also found community. I found a group of people who welcomed me and kind of became my second home. And like a lot of people, whether teenagers or not, uh, that was incredibly meaningful to me, and uh, it meant that I was willing to convert and devote my life to that church uh, in very uh, extreme ways. And how did Christian nationalism figure into that? My church was was shaped by the politics of the 1960s. Uh, I grew up in Orange County, California, uh, and I'm a mixed-race person, but it was a predominantly white church. And it was not a church where you went to to hear the sermon on Sundays and, and heard all about which politicians were for God and which were against. It was rather a place where you were subtly given the message about the ways that God wanted the country to, uh, to go and the ways that it had fallen away from him during, say, the sexual revolution or the women's liberation movements of the 60s or even the civil rights movements of the 1960s. It was the kind of place where without realizing it right away, you converted to a certain vision of the gospel, but also a certain vision of America uh, as it went with it. And so uh, when it came to Christian nationalism, it was only years later that I understood that when I devoted myself to Jesus there, uh, I was worshiping him at the cross, but I was also always worshiping him at a cross that was accompanied by an American flag that our Christianity and our Americanism always went hand in hand. And I think that's true for many people across the country, too. So you became a youth minister when you were in your teens. What did you preach? Yeah, so I, I became a minister at 18 and a full-time minister at 20. And I preached things that uh, are you know were related to conservative Christianity, that unless you accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would burn in hell forever. Uh, I was very motivated to 
proselytize to anyone who would listen. When I was in high school, I would go around my high school at lunchtime and ask various folks if they knew about the gospel of Jesus. Uh, oftentimes on a Friday night, you might catch me at the local movie theater with a friend, and we would ask kids our age if they were willing to repent and uh, and and ask God for forgiveness. Uh, I taught the kids in my youth group uh, that unless we you know, waited until marriage for sex, uh, that uh, we would be under God's wrath. Um, but I also uh, was completely enveloped by this idea of a Christian nation. And I, I, I really did believe that uh, if on a Sunday morning I, I passed people on the way to church who were out taking a jog or riding their bike or walking the dog rather than going to church, that it was a sign that our country had fallen away from its original founding and purpose. How did you leave the church? I know you studied theology at Oxford, and that inspired you to challenge the views that you'd held for so long. What were you exposed to at Oxford studying theology that made you rethink the foundation of your beliefs? The the process really began a few years before that. Uh, I was somebody who, as a convert, was incredibly zealous. And as a future professor, I was somebody who would read anything he could get his hands on. And as I did that, I started to think that the very kind of binary approach we had in our theology to life's most fundamental questions was not necessarily able to capture the complexity of being a human being. Uh, I remember telling some elders in my church that I wanted to vote for John Kerry rather than George W. Bush, because I thought John Kerry would do more for the poor and more for education than George W. Bush. And they looked at me and they said, you know, that's great. He might. But if you vote for him, that's somebody who is definitely in favor of abortion. And so you'll be voting for the Holocaust of millions of babies. Are you willing to do that? And when I went into the voting booth in that election, I was shaking because I knew that Kerry, in my mind at least, was the better choice. But the idea of having the murder of millions of children on my head and on my heart was something I didn't know if I could live with. And I, I I remember thinking, I don't know what to do here. And when I exited that voting booth, I that was a moment I determined to find a theology and an ethic that did more justice to the most pressing questions we have, whether that's abortion and reproductive rights, whether that's the death penalty, whether that's war. And so by the end of my time in ministry, I was doubting my entire faith and so when I went off to Oxford, 6,000 miles from home, uh, it only gave me more freedom to really figure out what I believed, and it eventually led me out of the movement. So one more question. Since 2018, you've been co-host of the podcast, Straight White American Jesus. That is a title that is bound to intrigue some people, confuse some people, and make some people really angry. <laughs> so tell us about coming up with that title and reactions that you've gotten to it. It's really hard to put on a t-shirt uh, because it just gives the wrong, gives the wrong, we have not sold a lot of t-shirts as part of the podcast. Um, uh, here's the goal behind the, the name. My co-host Dan Miller and I wanted to help others understand why when so many people in our country imagine Jesus, they don't think of a first century man who uh, uh, by today's standards would be considered someone who uh, was an immigrant and a person of color in many ways. Uh, in the United States, but instead they see uh, a projection of Jesus, who's a uh, vehemently straight, patriarchal, white, 
American who uh, is native-born, uh, gun-toting, and uh, willing to articulate uh, very conservative political policies down the line. Why do so many Americans think of Jesus as a straight white American tough guy, rather than as uh, a revolutionary prophet who preached love and compassion? We wanted to help folks answer that question, and so that's what we called the show. Well, thank you so much for coming on Fresh Air. Privilege is all mine. Thank you so much. Bradley Onishi is the author of the book Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. He co-hosts a podcast about religion and politics called Straight White American Jesus. He teaches at the University of San Francisco. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Sam Brigger. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts.